0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, associate professor of New Testament and academic dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: Great to have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students. Hey, Peter.
2: Hey Scott, good to be with you.
0: I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church up here in the DC area. Hey, Paul.
3: Scott, good to be with you all.
0: Great to have you. Also, we have Dr. Gray Sutanto, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology here at RTS Washington. Hey, Gray.
4: It's Scott, good to be here again.
0: It's great to have you. We also have a special guest today coming to us from now sunny Orlando, we hope. Dr. Mike Allen, the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology at RTS Orlando, and academic dean on that campus and theological interpreter extraordinaire, Dr. Mike Allen, how are you doing?
5: I'm doing great. Good to be with you guys,
0: Scott. It's great to have you, and thanks for taking this time out on a, uh, on a rainy morning in Northern Virginia as we're getting the storm that you just left behind. Um, it's great to have you, and we want to dig into all kinds of topics, but I think first of all, we want to start off and talk about something that we've kind of been peppering all of these podcasts with, which is the way in which we came to our various disciplines, the, the path, and the the journey that, that we took, the influences along the way. And um, so it's a pretty open-ended question, but how did you end up as the John Dyer Tremble professor of theology at RTS Orlando? It, it mostly, how, how did you end up in this discipline?
5: Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, I think in my case, probably as in so many, there were kind of long-simmering influences, but then also some more intervention-like moments where there were decisive shifts. And some of the long-simmering influences were that I grew up in a Christian household. And when I was six, my father, who'd been a lawyer, became a pastor. And so uh, not only were we in a a deeply Christian house, but also in a a ministerial house and got a front uh, row seat to what that involved. I also grew up in a house where the life of the mind was really, really valued. Um, both parents had graduate degrees, both parents had taught secondary and, and collegiate level uh, in various disciplines. And we actually had a lot of uh, other learned folks, including RTS Seminary professors who were regular figures in the house and who were mature and fun and encouraging. Uh, one in particular, uh, a now deceased but longtime professor at RTS Jackson, Knox Chamblin was godparent to my siblings and uh, would chase me around the house when I was two or three pretending to be a troll. And (laughs) I knew this was a Cambridge-educated guy who was brilliant and smart, uh, but was normal. And so uh, I think a bunch of values there in terms of devotion and commitment to Christ with everything you've got, valuing the life of the mind, and simply the idea that someone who's involved in academic work could not be an egghead, but could be normal and fun and appealing. Uh, Those were just deeply entrenched ideals that I think I absorbed from my environment there. That being said, I didn't grow up wanting to be a professor or a theologian. I actually, from about age three, wanted to be a lawyer. And by the time I went to college was dead set on a particular kind of law and a particular law school and everything that I had planned And so there were more intervention-like moments in my freshman year of college where I I felt that my my Christian calling in general was going to take a form of of entering full-time vocational ministry. And it it involved a lot of things. It involved taking New Testament Greek and learning that my freshman year of college and falling in love with studying the Bible. Um, It involved actually being hoodwinked my freshman year by a friend who asked me to go to church with him and we went to a a, a neighboring suburb and he immediately told, he walked up front, which I hadn't expected and he he began the service and I didn't know he was in charge. And suddenly he announced to them, I'd be taking over the next week. And so I wound up preaching and leading worship at this small church throughout the remainder of my college years. That was your Uh, freshman year? Yeah. Yeah. And so some very strange things like that, that that led me into full-time ministry. And over time, especially uh, as I was studying at Wheaton and interacting with some beloved professors, they began to suggest that maybe that kind of vocational calling could take a more academic bent. And I'll I'll confess throughout, especially my, my master's and my PhD, I was very torn between going into a uh, local congregational ministry as a, a full-time pastor and serving pastorally in a, a teaching setting. And uh, so that, that took several years to really sort out and even just to see what doors God would open. And I think that's continued to shape the way I think about what I do, that there is still a, a reality where I, I regularly think through that kind of decision and uh, whether or not my academic calling ought to be first and foremost. I think that affects how I look at it and how I pursue it and the way in which I view it as a, a real pastoral responsibility and stewardship with our
0: students um, and as Dean with staff and faculty, trying to view it in that light as well. So I'm interested because everybody on here is ordained and is thinking about how to do this in a similar way. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like to do theological inquiry as someone who has a pastoral bent, a pastoral interest?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably all of us feel that it, it plays out from different sides, doesn't it? I mean, in one sense, most of us are professors and pastors, and so there is a, a life beyond the walls of the seminary that involves, for me, as for, for you guys, preaching and teaching uh, involves, you know, some some form of shepherding. In my case, it's, it's leading a community group that meets at our house here, playing various roles in the local church and the presbytery and neighboring churches and so forth. But I think there's also another kind of aspect, and, and that's how does that affect what goes on in the seminary walls? And, you know, I, I think one of the things that RTS is valued, we're not alone in this, but thankfully this has been a, a, a market value and commitment of RTS, is caring for the whole student, and that means that we think about education as formation, we think about it as holistic, and that means that sort of the intellectual is never far from or divorced from the spiritual. And so uh, as a professor who's going to have to challenge folks, who's going to have to um, force them to look and pay attention to difficult things. I need to be mindful uh, that they bring baggage, they bring fear, they bring past experience, they bring worries, some good, some not. Um, and, and there are all sorts of pastoral elements to how we go about that and how we do that in a productive way. We can't manipulate students and we shouldn't try to do that. Right. But we do need to care for them and guide them in a way that, that's productive and not harmful. And I, I think that's a remarkably pastoral challenge. Um, it's, it's one that's well beyond any of our pay grades, of course, um, but it is one where it, it's, it's a real joy. It's a it's a real remarkable challenge and difficulty. And uh, it's great to see when that actually leads to women and men growing up in Jesus Christ, not just growing in their, their intellect or their knowledge or their skill and competency. And, you know, so that's what gets me out of the bed in the morning.
0: Well, you, you've also been incredibly prolific during your academic career and even in your teaching time too. You've been very prolific as a writer is, is, can you give us any, um, insight into the, the, the habits of Mike Allen, the writer, how, how how do you pull it off? Is it just something that comes naturally? Are you the one author for whom writing is the easiest thing in the world or, uh, How do you minister in that way in terms of your written output?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes instinctively, but not easily, if that makes sense. In other words, writing is a very natural aspect of my personality. For me to think, for me to love something involves me writing through it and thinking through it. And for me, most writing is sort of processing and trying to analyze something for myself as much as for any reader. And so that's, that's very instinctive uh, and natural in that sense. That doesn't mean it's easy. I have a number of editorial hats I wear and those, those create sort of a self-critical mindset, hopefully in a productive way. And so having to go back again and again and again um, over what you've, you've written, over what sense it makes, over what order it's presented in, over what it's overlooking, over the kind of way it interacts with people you may be disagreeing with, uh, you know, those are those are things that are just never completed and th- they're never easy. I've been reminded that pandemic for me has been a season of going through galley proofs and copy edits on a number <laughs> of manuscripts. And you know, if there's any way to make the pandemic quarantine experience worse, that might be it. But that that's been largely uh, the kind of academic work I was doing in late March, April and, and the first half of May. And and that is not easy or fun, but it's necessary, you know, the kind of care and, and attention to detail that, you know, pastors feel as they approach a pulpit, and that scholars hopefully feel as they, they put something down on paper. Wow.
4: Yeah. Speaking about your editorial work, Mike, you are an editor along with Scott Swain of the TNT Clark International Commentary Series, theological commentary series, right? And you also have a theological commentary yourself uh, coming out this November on Ephesians for the Brazos theological commentary series. So this is something that we'd love to think about. You know, what is the relationship between theology, tradition and scripture and exegesis and as Christian theologians, right? Or as Christian biblical studies scholars, right? We don't want to bifurcate one from another because we believe that all these things go together and the scripture illumines us by using the sources of our tradition, using the sources of theology to read the Bible well, and then coming back to our theology after having done exegesis. So I'd love to hear about your process of writing this particular text, your commentary on Ephesians. How did you approach this work? And how should we theologians think about the work of exegesis as part of our calling?
5: Sure, yeah. Uh, The how question's a little easier. Uh, It's more specific. Probably the why is more interesting and deeper. But... Um, The How is is 2019 was a sabbatical season for me, and I taught through Theological Exegesis of Ephesians, I think, three times in the six years prior, so I had tons of notes and so forth, and it's after the Psalms, it's the book I preached on the most, I think, in Scripture over the last uh, 20 years, so uh, there was lots of material and research and study behind this, but basically the book got written during that sabbatical season and uh, so that was a a great occasion to actually put things down and to focus on how i wanted to say things and in what way i wanted to attend to and develop a commentary that hopefully helps alert people to scripture itself a little more attentively that's the how the the why uh is a much longer question it's something that you know I know you guys explore with your students and you, you probably feel yourselves at a deep level that the modern theological academy uh, has put up a, a bunch of walls for a variety of reasons, intentional and unintentional. Uh, there's that one wall we've already noted that that you can have a divide between church and academy and uh, the academy can seek to, to do something rather different or even opposed to that of the church. And, and that's something that's really uh, developed since the 18th century in a new and fresh way. Um, But there are other divides, divides between doctrine and exegesis, divides even in the way we look at scripture itself or at the biblical literature, as as people might say, you know, divides between old and new Testament and even sub genres uh, within them. You know, I'm I'm just struck and Ephesians is a great example of this, of the significance of wholeness, the idea that, that we are meant to be whole, The idea that we are meant to uh, approach God fearfully and faithfully, receiving all the gifts that he has for us, looking to him to guide and equip and provide in all spheres of life. And that has implications for how we think about the theological task. So that doctrine and exegesis can't really be segregated or separated. They can be distinguished and should, but they ought to uh, be in constant interplay. Thankfully, in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a significant pushback on a lot of those modern academic trends, and I was blessed uh, being educated at Wheaton in a doctoral program that was structurally designed to counterman that, where whatever you're doing, whether you're a a theologian or an exegete, the first seminar you're doing was on the theological interpretation of scripture and trying to reflect on that and how that's going to shape the work you do dogmatically or exegetically. And um, for me, that's, that's just been formative, shaping the way I approach everything I do, whether it's writing a, a book on justification or sanctification, or it's writing a commentary that hopefully is not just a repository of linguistic and historical data, good as that is, but is actually attending to God. And to the subject of Scripture and its connections to the canon and its reading in the church and its implications for Christian lives today, so those would be some of the broad sort of thoughts behind why I would edit a commentary series with Scott Swain, why I want to write this commentary in particular, and you know and I, I think that's something all of us at RTS, whether we 're bib studies props or systematic theologians and historians trying to countermand and present a more beautiful and a a more compelling approach to how we think God uh, has got to be high on the list of our concerns. And so that's been something since the earliest days of my my academic career as a writer has been part of it. And something that sort of I'm I'm signed on to keep at uh, with Scott as an editor and and, in writing future commentary as well myself. So uh, that's something of the answer. Happy to talk about further
1: detail on any of it. ephesians is such a an interesting test case for the for theological interpretation i would i would think in particular not not being a an expert in that particular method but thinking about ephesians in particular where you've got you've got this it, it's kind of the odd man out in terms of the pauline corpus because it, it is the least occasional it, it you know, when you think about all of Paul's other letters there are these kind of specific reasons that he's writing and, and Ephesians is you're kind of going in blind from that perspective it's it but at the same time he has it you know he has it all in there you you get kind of the full orb of his theological outlook in six short chapters. Wondering you know, as a commentator on the book is part of that why you picked Ephesians? I mean it, you know, as as a kind of nexus point for all of kind of Paul's thought? I
5: I wish it were all as sort of philosophically driven as that. Uh, To some extent, I was earlier signed on in the series to write a volume on Job, gosh, seven or eight years ago, I guess. And I actually spent a year reading classical and modern commentaries on Job and working through the text and making notes. And after about a year of it, I went back to the series editor, Rusty Reno, and I just said, I could write you a, a volume on Job And I don't think it would add much of anything to the literature, really. I feel like I've kind of made sort of judgments about what I think is going on and what should be explored. And there's already great stuff on it in lots of ways. And he graciously allowed me out of that contract. And uh, I didn't have to write what I took to be a boring or repetitive volume. And then a few years later, uh, a dear friend and mentor and colleague, John Webster, passed away. And he'd been contracted to write on Ephesians. And a natural follow-up was that I would write the volume. And at that point, I'd already taught on Ephesians a couple of times. My reasons for teaching theological exegesis of Ephesians at the seminary level, Tommy, are what you mentioned, that it's this one occasion to see Paul ranging a bit more above the fray and yeah. presenting something of a uh, proportionate account of Scripture that is not actually tied to a crisis. Um, right sort of what he gets to say when he wants to say what he wants to say. And so that was helpful background. But the actual, the reason I wrote the volume was filling in uh, when that opening came and and feeling like it did provide a remarkable opportunity to address a number of topics that are uniquely expressed in Ephesians, even if they're touched on elsewhere. Uh, I did feel like there are certain emphases I wanted to highlight that don't tend to come up in a lot of the commentary literature, which I was familiar with at that point, from the teaching. I I am struck, uh, you know, especially as I talk to my biblical studies colleagues, in one sense, Ephesians is low-hanging fruit. So as a theological exegete, I took the easy way out. It's not like this is a volume where theological issues are hard to find or to identify. Uh, The problem is just the opposite, right? It's drenched with it, and it's very obvious. So, you know, it doesn't present some of the challenges of a a book like Esther or something where uh, you've got to make a stronger case to show how this reveals something of God. But, you know, it was remarkably enjoyable to explore a text that's right at the heart of a lot of debates in Pauline studies, in New Testament theological studies more broadly, and then in the history of Christian doctrine too.
3: Mike, thanks for joining us. I had a simple question. In your Work on Ephesians, which commentaries did you find most helpful, or just monographs, articles, and so forth?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. In this, as in so many cases, I, I think answer number one is when Calvin commented on it. Read Calvin, and Calvin on Ephesians is fabulous. So that was that was really helpful. There are a number of other works that were, were helpful in different respects and in, in different parts. I actually think F.F. Bruce's commentary in recent decades still actually stands up quite well, uh, even relative to some of his others that I've read through. Uh, his work on Ephesians is, is still remarkably helpful in a number of ways. Much more recently, uh, there's a, a volume by Stephen Fowl, and uh, it's, I think, especially helpful in particular sections, particularly the, the moral teaching of chapters four to six. So I, I found that very useful. Uh, There are a number of sort of more classic commentaries, but by far above each of them was was really Calvin's text. And then precisely because of what Tommy said, because Ephesians is this example of Paul's theology broadly, you know, a number of works on Pauline theology across the board become really helpful in that regard. And so some of the, the sort of standard works on Paul whether it's it's older stuff, we might point students to the, the Ritterboss kind of material, uh, or more recent stuff like the work of John Barclay, uh, proved to be really helpful in looking at different portions of it.
3: Yeah, Mike, one of the things I love about your works is that you do draw from such a wide array of sources across time. So when you were doing your Ephesians commentary, did you sense that the newer commentaries were doing or saying new things, whether it's an insight that maybe Calvin had not seen or highlighted, or did you find any methodological approach to interpreting Ephesians that was new and helpful? Now, there are always new things, but did you find, because you're in a great position where you can see what was written and what's written now. And so, again, anything new in terms of insight or approach?
5: Yeah, I would say, you know, it's interesting to look at newer commentaries or older commentaries. It's also useful to see where does Ephesians pop up, not just in commentaries, but in theological works more broadly. What's it doing when you pick up a a volume on the doctrine of God or Christology? And I do think that one way Ephesians has had significant impact in modern theology is in helping us to think sort of about the way in which God relates to creation more broadly and then more focused in in the way in which God relates specifically through the saving work of Jesus Christ uh, to creatures. And that's played out in different ways in different modern literature, whether it's Roman Catholic literature or Protestant literature of various streams. And obviously those people aren't all agreeing Um, but the fact that they've explored what we might call the the question of covenant, sort of the way in which God relates to creatures, most of them not using that word, and Ephesians not really using that word, Um, but getting at that idea of ordered relationship, that's become a really big modern focus in turning to Ephesians. And I think that's helpful. Uh, It prompts us to ask questions just underneath the surface of the text, as we're exploring resurrection or the work of the spirit or the work of reconciliation, uh, asking that, that second question, not simply what is this divine work, but what does this work reveal of the divine, you know, the, what we would call the one living and true God, what is this manifest of him as father, son, and spirit. And, And that's something I think modern literature has provoked. It's not always explored or answered it in a fitting way. But it has alerted us to a question that, that wasn't as obvious in some older literature in, in how it used Ephesians.
2: Hey, Mike, this is uh, Peter Lee. I have a uh, profound respect for you in particular, especially when you mentioned that you attempted to work through the text of Job uh, in that early commentary. Any man who is willing or even trying to do that either is crazy or loves the word of God because the, the Hebrew of Job is just brutally hard. And also uh, you must love the fact that the MBA is now completely centered in Orlando right now. I'm not sure if that's a distraction or a, or a blessing or.
5: (laughs) Well, I mentioned to Scott and a couple others beforehand that my application to be chaplain in the MBA bubble was apparently rejected. I'd let my president and our provost know that, you know, my teaching load might need to be covered for two to three months. If I was called into the Lord's service there.
2: Well, I mean, you'd be happy, but your writing production would uh, decrease uh, significantly, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah,
5: but some uh, Good interview uh, material. So, well,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. They're good Christian men in, in the NBA. A that's couple. Right.
5: And basketball, of course, is the Christian sport invented by a Presbyterian minister of the word. So was it really It was
4: It's the perennial
2: sport. It's a natural sport. Funny that that's never come up in church history classes.
5: Uh, oh, you have not had my church history too, my friend. Dr. Well, Jane you know
2: what? You, you have just
5: self- a, uh, a man called of God, equipped for a moment such as that. And uh, anyhow, the rest is history.
2: Well, I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm digressing here because I think I could talk forever about the, 1980, the 80s Lakers versus Celtics conflict, uh, and all of that. But uh, getting back to the uh, um. Focus here. Uh, Mike, I've been a huge fan of of what you've been doing ever since the uh, LA conference uh, that, uh, that I had a chance to attend a couple years ago and to hear and read your presentation on theological aesthetics, if I recall. So creative in an area of systematic theology where systematic theology is not always most recognized for creativity. But uh, I'm curious, you mentioned in in your commentary on Ephesians and and perhaps in a few other areas of work that you do, the term was uh, theological interpretation or theological exegesis. And uh, you you kind of alluded to what that might mean in in, in some of your descriptions. But I suspect a lot of our uh, uh, listeners here may not be aware what that might mean. It, It sounds fairly obvious, but you seem to use it in a much more technical, precise way the only time i've year i've seen uh adjectives used with the word exegesis is either good or bad <laughs> you know uh or it's biblical or not so uh, i was wondering uh and cuz i want you know i want people to definitely uh, benefit from your writing and from your uh your commentary on ephesians if you could share with us what what you mean by that and then on that same note uh i should say I think on behalf of our whole faculty, we all expect signed autographed copies of your, of your commentary for free, by the way. So, uh, so with that, what, what do you mean? What, what does that mean to do theological exegesis or theological interpretation of a biblical book?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, a word that could be used in a very non-technical way, obviously, uh, and might even seem redundant, like what would be non-theological exegesis of scripture to a, a, a lay person. Uh, But as as we were mentioning earlier, in the modern intellectual world of of the academy since the 18th and 19th centuries, there have been these silos or disciplinary divisions that at times have been hard and fast between church and academy and doctrine and exegesis, Old and New Testament, uh, even Jesus and Paul, you know, various parts of different testaments. And along with that have been ways in which the intellectual task of doctrine or of exegesis is oftentimes, for a variety of reasons, internal and external, it's been defined along the lines of other disciplines. So, for instance, a lot of what's gone on at the Society of Biblical Literature, where biblical studies profs get together, is really uh, simply work in reading ancient texts, not in reading Christian scripture, right? And, and folks are reading Hosea. In the same way they might read uh, Hesiod or or, or some other ancient work. And there's much to be gained from that. Of course, historically, literarily, we can't read the Bible as anything less than the way we read other texts. But the big question is, if, if we read it just like any other ancient text, are we missing things? Are we missing the fact that it is unique and that there are promises God makes of the Bible that are not made of any of my books? not even of any of the other classics of the ancient world. And so in the last 20 or 30 years, there have been a number of biblical studies professors, theologians, historians, from a variety of Christian traditions, um, Protestants, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, uh, who've wanted to rethink and to retrieve uh, and to reshape the way we think about the text, the reader, and the exegetical task in that light. And... Sometimes you'll hear the language of theological interpretation of Scripture, or TIS. Sometimes theological exegesis. Sometimes I'll use the language of theological commentary as well. I I use those three synonymously. Um, It's really a recent conversation. It's not a specific method. There's bickering and disagreement about exactly what it might involve amongst various practitioners, uh, even in the series that my Ephesians commentary is in from Brazos, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible. There are different approaches to the text, but there are some shared beliefs. I mean, one is, is the, the shared belief that this is Holy Scripture and that the triune God is the inspiring author who is not just historically inspired it, but seeks to speak through it today to his church. And so that, that, that's going to reshape how we think about the origin of the text There's also a a common judgment, at least in broad strokes, about the nature of the text that we're reading Holy Scripture as a totality. And even when we focus on Hosea or Ephesians, we read it in that canonical context. And so uh, we always need to read it with an eye to what Protestants have classically called the analogy of of faith or of Scripture. Uh, Scripture interprets itself. Uh, we We don't look to see it sort of uh, as a buffet, different things, each in their own flavor, but rather things that, that, that shape how we experience each other. And then third, that the reader has to be construed theologically. Uh, I'm not a neutral observer. You know, I'm a, I'm a treasonous child of Adam who's now redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and brought into his body where I'm being nourished and filled up and matured and grown up in Christ. And so the reading act isn't just about technical competence, though it involves that. It's also about spiritual sanctification and what we might call intellectual discipleship. And so we've got to be involved in mortifying our fleshly prejudices and assumptions Uh, And we've got to be involved in in the text vivifying or calling forth uh, new ideas, new delights, uh, new ways of looking at at God, the world, and ourselves. And so theological exegesis or commentary is, is really just trying to do the work of reading the Bible with a distinctly and explicitly theological approach to God as source, to Scripture as canonical text, and to reader construed in that spiritual or Uh, salvific sort of light. Within that, there's lots of bickering and disagreement. Uh, It's not a party line. It's not a monolithic movement or method. It's it's a conversation space where folks are trying to get past some of those modern ailments. And I think if we're honest, they're not just modern ailments. They're temptations of of sinful men and women. Uh, We like to read the text at a remove because we like not to be confronted with what's wrong with us. We like not to be reminded of our need to depend on God, uh, and a lot of Enlightenment rationality and modern disciplinary divides are just a creative recent manifestation of the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, and, and as Christians, we ought to appreciate that. And sadly, sometimes we've forgotten that for various reasons as we've we've interacted in the academy and sought to uh, exemplify the life of the mind in our reading of Scripture. So hopefully, TIS has has brought us back into what might be the mainstream of Christian biblical interpretation through the centuries in that respect.
2: That's beautiful. Um, I, and that really, just hearing you describe that, so ministers to me even as as a Christian, because, you know, there is that tendency to uh, uh, to read the Bible as, as literature and to forget that these texts were written f- with a particular audience and readership in mind. I mean, we can debate who that Readership in that audience may be, but they read this with a desire to gain hope, uh, a sense of life, uh, a sense of God, um, and to devoid the text of that uh, of that intent does seem to be not true to its original intent, and that's something the academy does tend to kind of ignore. The uh, and so I, I think that's great, and and that's beautiful. There is uh, I wonder though uh, the the benefit of the uh, the academy study of scripture though is to see not maybe the the unique aspect as you just described it but the commonality that scripture has with its uh literary surroundings uh, and there's of course as you know gain in, in that as well just to understand the, the the nature of scripture in order to do a theological commentary like this is, is there some sense in which that has to be sacrificed perhaps more of the literary a setting in which it was written or something like that. I, was, I guess a commentary can't be everything. Uh, there always has to be a certain focus. So I was wondering what, what has to be minimized in order to maximize the theological.
5: Right. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. One thing that's the case, whether it's a class I teach or a commentary I write or a sermon any of us give, you're always choosing what, what to, you know, front and what to put in the back. Or what to leave on the the cutting room floor altogether. Uh, We are finite. We can't say everything. I don't think, though, that there is a universal and global way we can say the historical or the contextual or the linguistic should be sacrificed. I think we're duty bound to say with different texts, some things will be more or less significant. Uh, And I think this has been a big area where folks involved in theological exegesis haven't always been as helpful as they should be. So Gray had mentioned that that Scott Swain and I are editing a commentary series for TNT-Clark, the International Theological Commentary Series, and uh, it's eventually gonna be a whole Bible project. And our design in doing that is wanting to see theological exegesis come to something of a second generation kind of maturity where a lot of its first iterations in the the 90s and the early years of this, this century Were reactive and oftentimes just had an outright antipathy to modern modes of study. And I think there are are times where antipathy to modern modes of study is entirely appropriate, as as it applies to certain texts and approach to certain passages and so forth. Um, But to suggest that somehow it's not necessary anywhere is to miss a lot of the Lord's provision and a lot of the, the, the way in which our eyes can be opened what's going on in the text. And so... Um, I don't think we can have some sort of global posture of you must always talk about what modern you know, archaeologists are talking about with respect to a scriptural text. Well, Some texts, you can ignore it, and it actually doesn't affect it materially, uh, and so you might background it. Others, it's going to actually have theological consequence and shape what's going on in the text, and so you've got to foreground it to some extent, or at least deal with it in a significant way. And so I think we need to have text and genre-specific judgments about what kind of methods are going to be more or less fruitful and more or less necessary. And that's why reading broadly across the commentary and exegetical traditions is going to be helpful for folks, whether they're preachers, or they're Bible readers, or especially if they're scholars and writers. Different methods will be more or less fruitful in highlighting and foregrounding and emphasizing what's going on in different texts and different genres. And so there there are some things in higher criticism, for instance, that are just going to be theologically ruinous. But when we get to lower critical judgments and different kinds of methods or approaches, different aspects of the text you're looking at, most of them are, are productive and alert us to see something in a number of different places. And most of them get to be really redundant and painful if they're all you're ever doing in the same way that certain sermon approaches. You know, if every text is dare to be a Daniel, you got a problem. But dare to be a Daniel is good in some texts, like Hebrews 11, for instance, right? If every text is and Jesus is the true and greater, you got a problem. But there are a whole range of texts where that's absolutely crucial because earlier in Hebrews, repeatedly, he is the true and greater, this, that, and the other. And so... We need to uh, have a range or a toolkit, exegetically speaking. And you know, I find reading both classical and modern commentaries of different sorts hopefully help give me different tools. And and I can just ask, what's helpful with this text? What's what's going to alert me to something going on? Not just with the topic and the occasion, but the way the words run in that passage or this verse.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I, you were talking about you 're bringing your enlightenment conceits and sensibilities to a text and the dangers that, that raises and i I think about i mean having just taught through for instance the prophets in our summer sessions and i 'm thinking about the import of the canonical approach over the last forty years of kind of creating a groundwork in which this theological interpretation can have a renaissance. And it's not it's not a nascence, it's not a birth, right? Because, like you said, Calvin's been doing this, but because of this broad project that is the Enlightenment, there had to be created this kind of space where you could have this conversation that's not impeded by historical criticism in many ways, you know, and that and that whole endeavor, kind of rationalist and piercist, you know, endeavor. And you know, with Brevard Child's sort of realizing that, realizing that he can't, in many ways, even though he is fully committed to the historical critical mode, he can't continue teaching some of this stuff that comes out of German ideological traditions and everything. And really kind of, you know, that's sort of what lays behind his canonical approach, which now sort of creates a space where you can read a book like Exodus theologically again and comment on it in that way, you know, and uh, it's been really interesting to watch as that canonical movement has created that groundwork. And then you see a lot of those canonicalists moving into its theological interpretation and a very helpful, I think, beneficial project.
5: Yeah. And I mean, one of the areas in TIS that's been most interesting to watch is the Book of the Twelve and the way the yeah. minor prophets are addressed, not just as discrete random people who happen to be walking in the same neighborhood, but as actually a group and as as to be read alongside with each other. Uh,
0: Which is, so it's really interesting. I mean, so we, this is, the, that was the occasion. It's the twelve. it was the occasion of this discussion in class. If you go back and you read Calvin on Amos, he reads Amos in light of Joel without making a historical argument that Amos should be read in light of Joel. And anybody who thinks of the 12 separately would say, well, wait a minute, you can't read Amos in light of Joel. Joel's hard to date, no doubt. Um, but he's reading it as a, as, as a compilation. He's reading it as a, as, as with an authorial editorial hand that is, has you know, written these books and, and structured them in such a way in their canonical shape that they have meaning and can be read in light of what came before. And it's a really fascinating little insight. I'm not sure how aware Calvin is that he's doing it because he doesn't reflect on it, but he just does. It,
1: you know. it kind of goes back to what you were saying about wholeness as well. You know, at the, at, at the beginning um, you know our goal as faculty is to minister to the whole person and uh, but but the, the academy is kind of set up in some ways to compartmentalize various aspects of of our lives and when you when you said you know I started writing this commentary on job like my first thought is no you can't do that that's not that's not allowed because you're an ST guy and I mean maybe you could get away with Ephesians but you can't get away with Job, but that's like how it's so ingrained in how we do research that the, the only the only true generalist has to be the pastor. The, it's, it's really pastors that can do theological work and exegetical work and pastoral work and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And part of the attraction here is, for me at least, is that does kind of recapture that idea of no, all of our work goes together and coheres because we're aiming for the life of the mind, the whole, the whole you know, heart, will, and soul of, of human beings.
5: Yeah, and I think we've got exegetical and theological reasons for that. I mean, our, our, our go-to verse on Scripture is from 2 Timothy 3, and it doesn't just say it's inspired. It says all Scripture's inspired, and it's so that the man of God may be complete, Right, so all and complete are paired terms there, and to the extent that certain parts of scripture are functionally non canonical in other words, we don't touch them we can presume that we or our church is incomplete in some way, functionally speaking. So, one of the things I want to explore as I teach history, as I try and write doctrine, and as I I think about commentary and exegesis is always what texts are actually in play. And what is functionally non existent And obviously, we're all finite. We can't do everything equally, nor should we necessarily. Uh, But we do want to ask, are we trying to be alert to blind spots? Are we aware of where our priorities are, and do they match those of Scripture? And how can we be better resourced by those who have paid better attention to parts of Scripture that we or our church or our tradition may have underplayed for whatever reasons? And so wholeness gets to be really important because that's that's how the man of God is equipped, uh, according to Second Timothy three. There, so um, you You could say
1: wholeness is kind of like an imperative.
5: Yeah, you might say that someone should write a book about that. They should preach. Preach. I haven't received a copy of it, mind you, so I don't know if someone has. But
0: quid pro quo, my God.
5: (laughs) Fair enough. Pro quo. Fair enough, Mr. President.
2: Uh, hey Mike. In in light of this wholeness discussion and uh, some of the uh, divides that you had mentioned that you're trying to bridge, uh, one of them you mentioned was the distinction between. Uh, I can't quite recall if the terms you used was church versus the academy, and uh, I guess uh, I was wondering: by academy, are you still speaking of this in the context of uh, of the evangelical community? So is this the evangelical academy that you see that you see some distinction here from the Evangelical Church, because that there is a a divide there as well, uh, and I guess part of the reason I ask it is uh, you know as an, as an ot guy, some of the commentaries in the past uh, i don 't know 10, 15 years or so that i 've come across ha- have been somewhat devoid particularly of a of a christocentric uh, approach. they seem to be shy about that, and I wondered if that had something to do with the lack of a theological interpretation of scripture that you 're seeing there in favor of you know, literary analysis, you know, Job is like other wisdom texts of its setting, that type of a thing. Uh, Ephesians is, um, you know, it is a standard epistle as it was written in, in the, in, in in its day. You know, if you do that, then you're sort of sacrificing to a certain degree theology and the message um, in favor of these other analyses that is more kind of general and, and, and common. So, by I, I guess that was the question: Is you know I could see the the secular academy not being interested necessarily in things messianic and Christocentric. It makes sense, but um, for it to have occurred, and I hope I'm not making enemies with this, but for it to occur in the context of uh, evangelical commentaries, I found it un, a, a bit uh, surprising. Is is that part of what you're seeing here and what you're trying to bring together, so to speak? in this new yeah. wellness approach.
5: No, that's a really searching question, Peter. And I, I think obviously it it starts in the wider academy. Uh, you know, going back, you can look at texts into the late 18th century, certainly Christian as well as Jewish, uh, you know, everything from Spinoza to Ben Jowett decades later. But I, I, I do think that a lot of Uh, evangelicals or those we would simply call sort of lowercase o orthodox kind of mainstream Christians who wouldn't view themselves as liberals or revisionists of whatever tradition, a lot of them, a lot of us, have played by the rules of the wider academy and amazingly gotten better results. And so a lot of the hermeneutical approaches of, you know, the late 19th into the middle of the 20th century are functionally the same Minus a couple higher critical judgments as the wider academy. And amazingly, Jesus still rises and God still made it all. But there aren't necessarily methodological differences. And I I think that's a tragedy. Uh, I think we ought to to really challenge some of those modern or just, modern isn't the issue, it's the manifestation. Those disbelieving or atheistic approaches. Um, You might call them deistic approaches. And we ought to have a more searching critique of what we think the text is, of who we think we are, and thus of what the act of reading might involve. And I think thankfully that's, that's changed. But I mean, you know, one, one touch point, a case study, I think one of the great hermeneutical case studies is, is the song of songs about God. And and I think a hermeneutic stinks to the extent that the song of songs isn't about God. And, uh, To the extent that the song is simply about human love, it is not the best of all scriptural songs. It's not better than the Psalter. And so, you know, I think we'd have to be honest and say there are a lot of evangelical or mainstream lowercase o orthodox commentaries that parade the fact that it's just a bunch of love poems from the ancient world and that that's valuable because it shows we care about the body and marriage and sex and so forth. And we're not uh, you know, puritanical naysayers or Gnostics. All that's true, um, but, you know, if, if that's all we get from the Song of Songs, then I think we've fallen a long way from Christians from the early church all the way into the Reformation, uh, into the Puritan movement, um, where, you know, that's in many ways the climactic book of the Old Testament because it speaks of this highest intimacy and communion with God that everything else is pointing to, law and prophets alike. So, Um, You know, that's one case study, and I think it's a case study that shows that a lot of the wider problems have infiltrated the evangelical world. And a lot of the best-selling commentaries out there are pretty devoid. God isn't the subject of many sentences. Um, So that's a challenge for all of us, I think.
4: This has been a really helpful discussion, Mike, as we're thinking about the work of theological exegesis. It's really irresponsibility responsibility of the Christian theologian who's working in the intersection of the church and the academy. Right. And we've also talked about some of the obvious tools that the theologian needs to utilize for modern biblical studies, talked about archeological, historical data and linguistic analysis and being competent in all those skills. Um, But at the same time, we have to also acknowledge that in a sense, theologians have been doing this all of church history, right? We're thinking about sacred doctrine in the medieval age. Sacred doctrine just is interpretation of scripture. It's a study of scripture. And we have so many good exemplary theological readings in Aquinas's commentary and John Calvin's commentaries that you've already mentioned. So though it's already obvious that the theologians need to borrow or use, right, the biblical studies scholars, what particular tools the theologian's toolkit actually makes him uh, or her a, a fitting exegete of scripture, right? It, this actually gives him or her an, uh, an, an advantage of reading scripture.
5: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Gray, and I think we need to maybe get past some of the scripture and history debates by realizing uh, the history of Christian doctrine is the history of better and worse biblical exegesis. That's, that's functionally what's going on, and that doesn't mean that's all that's going on. That doesn't mean it's always going on well and productively, but that is the kind of uh, lens we've got to bring to studying that uh, predominantly. And so uh, we want to look to and be resourced by those voices. And so, you know, I think as a theologian and a a reader of scripture, it's incumbent on me and it's a blessing to me not just to read the best modern commentaries. And I, I do that regularly, reading them cover to cover, but also to be reading through classic commentary or homily material. So, you know, I want to be reading across scripture. What are the texts I want to ask that I know less about that I need to study and read and meditate on? And then what are the authors that I haven't yet gained from? And I want to go to them, and I I don't want to parrot them or simply, you know, imitate every last bit, but I want to be alerted and resourced and provoked and challenged by them, uh, believing that the, the Spirit has been working through His church and illumining His Word, Uh, And so I want to read Bonaventure as well as Owen. I want to read Augustine as well as Calvin. I want to read Aquinas or Basel and Irenaeus and Origen, as well as reading Childs and and others in the modern tradition that we've mentioned this morning. So, you know, I, I think that that is a task as we think educationally about how we can cultivate good reading of Scripture.
4: Yeah, so as we think educationally now, what resources would you recommend to the listener if they want to get at theological exegesis? One resource that comes to my mind immediately is actually uh, Rusty Reno's book, who's of course the editor for your Brazos commentary. His, uh, I think it was a co-authored book called Sanctified Vision, right? How the church fathers actually read the scriptures. And that was really, really helpful for me. What other resources would you recommend? Yeah,
5: that's a great recommendation, Gray. That's Uh, I teach history one to our students, and it's all primary sources. If I assign one secondary source, I always tell them it would be that book because it's so user-friendly, accessible, and helpful in showing them how early fathers read scripture, what they're doing, what's going on as they they engage productively in reading the text and debate with each other on it, bicker over it. Other things, I think it's helpful to get people actually reading people reading the Bible um, as fast as we can. So the the easiest way to do it is IVP has published the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series that goes through the whole Bible, and it's got excerpts of early fathers. Um, They're excerpts. You're not reading a, a, a common train of thought, and there are limits to that, but it's a good intro. And they're now doing a Reformation commentary on Scripture that's largely 16th century, a bit late 15th, a bit early 17th. Uh, but various Reformers on all sides, Protestant, Catholic, and and the various strands within each. um, What are they saying on Galatians, on Ephesians, etc., on each given verse? Uh, That's a helpful starting point. If folks want an intro to more recent hermeneutical discussions about theological interpretation, I think the best text to start with is uh, Dan Trier's Introducing Theological Interpretation of Scripture. It gives a really good intro to what was going on, to what responses have come to what was going on in the modern academy, and then to what debates are going on amongst folks who say they're doing theological exegesis. So uh, it's, it's not a party line sort of manifesto. It's a good introduction to a conversation and to a broader movement. Uh, and, and I think it's really useful for folks who are pretty new to it. Um, You know, and then on the far side of that, folks can just be picking their great series, Uh, the works of Augustine, the Fathers of the Church, Calvin's commentaries, Luther's works. Um, You can get so much of it free on Christian Classics Ethereal Library, uh, which is a painful way to read, browser clicks, but um, just get people into the great literature where folks are commenting on the Psalms or giving homilies on the gospel according to John, or working through Hebrews or Daniel or whatever it may be. And and I think working through those, there's no right answer or go-to text that you must begin with, but familiarizing with the wholeness and richness of that helps us uh, to not fall into party lines and into narrowness of our experience and our traditions and strengths, uh, but to be better resourced and alerted by the whole people of God, reading the whole scripture of God.
0: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for this conversation. This has been beneficial not only in introducing us to an intellectual program, but also just the, the devotional aspects of reflecting on what it means to read Scripture in the Christian life. Um, I've been deeply blessed by it. And, and on that last point that you brought up, um, we need to have you back to talk about resourcement uh, and, uh, and what that whole thing is, is about. Okay? It's that something that we're fun. hearing a lot about these days. Yeah. We'd love to have you back. Thanks again for your time and to everybody. May the Lord bless you and keep you. It's just been a joy to have this conversation. Look forward to seeing you all again next week. Take care.
1: I'm I'm a bit jealous, to be honest, that that you've got this little movement that you can you can intrude on biblical studies on on our on our territory. <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, I was I was I got to teach uh, Christology, Soteriology, Eschatology uh, two years ago, but they won't let me teach it again because I'm not you know I'm not an ST guy.
5: We've all had that experience, Tommy, where we do it once and they don't let us do it again. It's, yeah. Actually, you know what? That's totally
2: true, Tommy. Why is it that they can write commentaries, but we can't teach justification? That makes no sense.
0: That's not right. We need to come up with some with, with some movement that, that justifies it.
2: Well, you know what? I think I could easily see, and this is just my bitterness as an OT guy coming through here, but I could see how Tommy and Paul as NT guys can teach about... Justification, sanctification, and union mm-hmm. with Christ, but we mentioned that in the Old Testament. And we, the
0: we we are it. we're the redheaded stepchild in this
2: right. World. We all of a sudden we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> now, all of a sudden our doctrine of justification is suspect. You know,
5: ugh, good gravy. Now I'm mad. Hey, Walter Brueggemann's writing doctrine. I may not. I may that's not push it as being the most viable way forward. But there's a man that's who's true. actually doing it. Yeah, you see that suspect.
0: Well, he could be our child's, he could be our child's, you know, kind of creating the web. I think Peter's particularly triggery today. He's getting triggered a lot. I've noticed that Peter, in the past several months. You
4: know, <laughs> so, Peter, my next book project is I want to write an introduction to the Abrahamic covenant. As awesome. a systematic view. <laughs> what, what was that you wonder what, your next is what? My my next writing project is an inter- introduction to the Abrahamic Covenant. I'll, I'll just do. Oh, this, okay, this. sure. Why not? Well, I mean, what what's the point of
2: my writing on it? You're right. I
4: mean, oh, I mean. Oh, gee, forgive yeah. me for for
2: thinking that I can do that. Response
3: to Peter Lee. A response to Peter Lee. <laughs>